Like many people, you've probably noticed that weather is making front page news more and more these days. Between road closing snowstorms, flash floods, and deadly hurricanes, we all want to know the story behind the forecast and how to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. I'm Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises. In this episode of Behind the Headlines, our host Terry Barr is talking with meteorologist Joe Martucci of the Press of Atlantic City and meteorologist Sean Sublett with the Richmond Times-Dispatch in Richmond, Virginia. Their discussion revolves around weather as a headline, starting with Hurricane Ian. What have we learned more than a month later? Why are we still surprised about the path that the hurricane took? And how is climate change impacting decisions being made by some city leaders, including in coastal Atlantic City, where Joe Martucci reported earlier this year on rising tidewaters leading to school closures? And finally, winter is coming. What can we expect and why? Here's Terry with Joe and Sean after this short break. Well, thank you, Chris. Yeah, I am here right now with uh, Joe and Sean, both meteorologists, both experiencing different weather, but willing to kind of talk about what we've been seeing recently. And I think, Sean, let me start with you. For me, top of mind uh, remains what we saw with Hurricane Ian in Florida. We're a month out, and when you see some of the photos, boy, I I feel so bad for everybody there. But what happened in the tracking of the storm that maybe some of us don't understand? It was supposed to hit St. Petersburg and Tampa, but it went south of the area. What happened? I think what what a lot of people misunderstand is that a hurricane forecast changes two to three days out. Uh, if you if you take a forecast two or three days out and then just make actionable decisions on that without understanding that there is there is nuance and and the precision of that track where the precise eyewall is going, uh, without paying it a little closer attention to to where the risk still can be, you can miss out on vital information. My sense is that's what happened. I mean, for example, on you know, I think it hit on Wednesday evening. On Tuesday morning is when it became more obvious that it was going to go a lot farther south than we envisioned it over the previous weekend. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know that a lot of people were trying to raise red flags on Tuesday morning. It's coming in south. It's going to be there in 36 hours. You should be gone Tuesday. You should be where you need to be by Tuesday night so you're out of harm's way. Um, Then you get into the logistics of how long do you need to evacuate, these types of things. So my concern is a lot of people don't quite understand the nuance of 10, 20, 30 miles about the specific center of a hurricane. Because we tell people it's not about the point, right? Obviously, it's way bigger than a point. But the center of circulation is critical to understanding how big the storm surge is going to be. And I think that's where a lot of the miscommunication was. Joe, what would you say to that? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, with the cone, Tampa and Fort Myers were generally in the cone for most of the time. That being said, you know, and this is similar to what happened in Sandy in 2012, the European model was more in tune with a Fort Myers landfall than the GFS model, which is an American model here. And I think that might be where a little bit of confusion come from. I think overall, though, if you're just looking at the forecast cone, I would say that this was a fairly accurate forecast. That being said, I think much of the attention 
was focused on the Tampa-St. Petersburg area, where there probably should have been maybe equal attention between, hey, anywhere between Fort Myers and St. Petersburg and Tampa should be on alert for that storm to come on through. And here's the other thing, too, um, Terry, if I may. You Mm -hmm. know, one thing I think we need to realize is that's only where the center of the storm is going to go over. You know, the center of the storm could be right on the edge of that cone. That's still an accurate forecast according to the National Hurricane Center, but there can still be impacts outside of that cone. As both of you sat and and watched all of this happening, I mean, what were your thoughts? I I would love to hear what you were thinking and, and, you know, just sort of watching it as not just meteorologists, but people caring about what was happening. Joe, let's start with you. I mean, I think with any of these storms, you you, you think about the people who are still in that storm, whether they're first responders or people who didn't evacuate. Um, you know, we are all meteorologists and at our core, these kind of storms not only, you know, give us energy, but mm-hmm. also we're the genesis for many of us becoming meteorologists. So I think a lot of it, you know, can kind of take us back to our childhood um, in that way. But, you know, we do also think about all the Death and devastation. To be honest with you, Terry, I mean, a lot of it was also thinking about the track. And, you know, there was so much focus on the Tampa, St. Petersburg area. We should have focused, again, both on Fort Myers and Tampa, St. Petersburg area. And then as an extension of that, all the storm surge that we saw, I mean, just looking at these flooding maps, areas that could flood, you know, really stood out to me. Yeah. And, And Sean, I mean, again, it's a month later. We have not been able to see uh, a lot of work being done there. But I mean, looking ahead, I hate to even ask this, but is this something that we're going to see more of in the future? More hurricanes, more um, stronger storms. This was what, a cat four, almost a Mm -hmm. category five. Yeah. So here's where the science is on that, you know, with hurricanes and, and a warming climate. The, the one thing we need to just kind of get rid of first is that there's suddenly going to be more hurricanes because the science does not support that at all. Okay. So it's not about the number so much, but when you have a warmer atmosphere and you have warmer water, which we have in this case, mm-hmm. once hurricanes do get started, there's more fuel to sustain them and help them get stronger. And they also tend to hold together a little farther northward than they used to. And I say they used to 30, 40, 50 years ago. Right. All right. So that's the concern, I think, as we go forward. Not that there's suddenly going to be a whole bunch of them. But when they do form, there is going to be this tendency for them to be stronger or perhaps even get stronger faster because of the warmer water as the planet continues to warm. So these are the things I think about. And I also think about building codes, how, how prepared are we going back to what you, what you started off with, with Joe. I mean, what, what do I think about as these things Mm -hmm. hit, as they hit, I'm thinking, I hope people got out of the way who were asked to get out of the way. And I said, of course there are some people who can't afford to leave. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that they found the best possible shelter that they could and can make it through the worst of this. And I just hope that, you know, insurance has covered it the best they can. But as, as we all know, anybody who has done this for any length of time, looking at coastal insurance, coastal resilience, people wanting to build on the coast where there's where there's risk, that's a whole nother thing. 
Wow. Joe, you and I did a podcast a while ago, and we'll include it in our show notes for people that may have missed it, but talking about Atlantic City, where you are, and again, it just kind of comes back to those higher waters. And when I've explained to people what you told me about kids not being able to go to school because schools are being flooded by these rising waters, I mean, what have you seen this year? We, we did this early on uh, months ago. So what are you seeing where you are right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, uh, you know, Press of Atlantic City actually just put out two pieces talking about um what's happened since Superstorm Sandy hit in 2012. Uh, one piece was about, um, you know, extreme title flooding and senior citizens talking about some of the stories that senior citizens had during Sandy and just how, you know, raising houses uh, can be an impact on seniors. One, you yeah. have to pay for it too. You know, once you get older, 75, 85, you know, whatever, it's harder to climb up those stairs as well. That's also something that needs to be, you know, kept in mind here. The second story we did was just how the shore has changed in New Jersey since then. Um, you know, this year uh, we've had our share of tidal flooding events. Um, I wouldn't say anything more than usual, but what I would say um, is, you know, this is something, especially that nuisance kind of flooding, you know, maybe only three, four inches of water on the road. Those are the events that are happening more frequently in places that are not taking care of fortifying you know, their boundaries, whether it's an island or their town, whatever have you, to prepare against that kind of coastal flooding. So what do we do? I mean, when it comes to this, um, I, I guess, you know, the the whole idea is with, with climate change in general, people are out there and they're trying to get everybody to be aware of it. But then you've got the naysayers on the other side. Right now, where we stand and what we've seen with the flooding, warmer waters, um, what would be a plan of action? Is it just awareness right now? Is that the biggest thing? Joe, you want to take it? Oh yeah. Well, if we had an easy answer, then uh, we'd be we'd have a lot of money. But there, there's no <laughs> easy answer to this. Unfortunately, it's a very thorny problem, right? You mm -hmm. know. So if you're at the coast, you have to prepare for more recurring coastal flooding, as Joe and his friends and colleagues there have in Atlantic City. It's not like you're going to wake up at ten years and everything is just gone. It is incremental. Initially, you have more coastal flooding, as he, as he said, nuisance flooding at times of high tide. But coastal flooding will start to go a lot farther inland than it's ever had in the past more frequently until, yeah, 50, 60, 70 years now. You're like, now the water's here and it's just not leaving. So we have to think about natural coastal defenses uh, here in, in the Chesapeake area of Virginia, we think about uh, oyster beds, oyster reefs, those kinds of natural defenses as well. You know, the mangroves that were all up and down the Florida coastline are largely gone, mm -hmm. pulled out, and you know, people want to live at the beach. These are the kinds of things that we have to think through on top of, you know, the root cause of the problem. You know, we're burning too many fossil fuels. It sends carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and that warms the planet. I mean, that's basic physics that's been known for more than a century. Right. Unfortunately, some people have a financial interest in not wanting to believe that. Hmm. Joe, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the one thing I like to say when I do all of my talks is that, you know, climate change isn't a religion. You don't believe in it or not. There are facts right. and forecasts. And then what you choose to think about it is where your beliefs come in. So, you know, it's not my job to tell you, you know, what 
could or couldn't or should or shouldn't be done to do about it. But what I can say is what other towns have done about it. So, you know, or what the government has done about it. So, for example, um, the Army Corps of Engineers has proposed floodgates and some of the inlets in New Jersey that would literally hold back excessive seawater from coming into the back bay. So it comes from the ocean, goes into the bays, and from the bays, it goes to the shore. If you put up the fence between, you know, in those inlets, you prevent some of that ocean water from coming in. That's a proposed plan. We have also seen roads being raised, right? So that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. I mean, it solves <laughs> the problem in the sense that the roads are dry, but it doesn't mitigate that flooding. Um, but what we've also seen is the state of New Jersey has something called the Blue Acres Program, where they buy out. It's a voluntary buyout, but it's a buyout of houses along susceptible areas. So those are some things that have been done, at least, you know, our area that I'm covering the Jersey Shore that have been done, um, you know, in terms of trying to, you know, mitigate the effects of sea level rise here. And those gates you mentioned, similar to what we saw in New Orleans, it sounds like. Um, I, well, they're not levees per se. Okay. Uh, I know, and Sean, chime in if you know a little bit more to me <laughs> about this. I, I'm not sure if if there are floodgates in Louisiana, then it's probably the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, but what it is, it, it's their gates that, you know, you're going to put it on the bed, on the seabed, right? And you're going to block some of that tidal flooding from coming on in. So, Terry, you you probably know more than me about what's going on in Louisiana, but I, I hope that sounds about what I was explaining with New Jersey. Yes. Yes. I believe so. Sean. Yeah. I kind of what, what Joe said. I mean, there are places where that just doesn't work like in Florida because Florida largely sits on a bunch of limestone and the water's kind of creeping in from the bottom. So you can't just build a gate or a wall. The water's kind of working its way from bottom to top, kind of percolating upward. I mean, the, uh, the salinity line is coming up. The aquifers are threatened by saline water. Um, So as much as we like to think, yeah, well, we'll spend some money and build a wall in Florida. That's not going to fix it, man. Wow. You know, it was fascinating um, when part of the storm did go through Tampa and suck the water out of Tampa Bay and then seeing people standing on the bottom of Tampa Bay, but being told, you know, get out of there. You're going to fall through to the bottom. And that's just something else like with the sinkholes and all of these things that I I just don't think we all think about as being related to weather. Well, you know what? Uh, Florida is very similar to California in the sense that it's a great place to live, but dot, dot, dot. And in the case of Florida, you have very high heat, very high humidity, sinkholes, risk of hurricanes and tropical systems. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I love going to Florida. Me but I'm too. just saying, you know, <laughs> when, when Florida isn't uh, sunny and 80 degrees all year round either. You know, th- there are concerns that need mm-hmm. to be addressed, um, you know, in terms of the weather. And again, where both of you are located, you know, we're talking about Atlantic City and Richmond. We're still, you know, showing examples of what's happening all the way around our country because we have so much coastline. So I don't want to rule anybody out or say, oh, this can't happen where you live because so much of this could happen. And I know you recently talked about winter weather on a podcast. I hate to even go there, but... Let's do it. What are you seeing when it comes to looking ahead to the winter forecast? And and Sean, let's jump back to you for this. Sure. Yeah, we had another podcast with uh, one of our colleagues in, in New England, uh, Judah Cohen, who really specializes in, in this type of forecasting. Hmm. Um, you know, 
some people think it's just a big crystal ball. Uh, I think that's what the <laughs> farmer's almanac uses, but he uses and a lot of people who do this longer term forecast use analogies. Look at these larger term oscillations and, and all this alphabet soup, the, the Pacific decadal oscillation, the ENSO, the angular, I mean, all these things that have this quasi cyclical kind of thing. Yeah. But right now there isn't an obvious signal one way or the other. There does seem to be some suggestions that it will be cooler in the north, and I mean relative to normal, on the northern tier United States and a little milder and drier in the southeast. But that does not mean, you know, winter winter is about 90 days, right? It's a season. And there, there's no way it's going to be the same way every day for 90 days. Right. So, you know, I think for, for my money, when I look back at, at my part of the country in the middle Atlantic, the near southeast, mm -hmm. uh, I expect it to be a mild winter, at least with respect to normal. There will be a couple of colder spells, but probably not an awful lot of snow. I think we'll look back and say, yeah, it snowed a little bit here and there, but we're not going to look back and think, wow, this was a cold and snowy winter. Don't think that's the way it's going to play out here. Okay, Joe. <laughs> you know, um, two things that are interesting as we go into this winter, one of which is it's the third winter in a row that we're going to be in a La Nina, which means cooler than average waters across the equatorial Pacific. In other words, look at Peru, draw a line west. Those okay. waters are below average. That influences our weather, weather here. And to Sean's point in the southeast, that typically means milder than average and drier than average. But in the northern tier, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota, the Dakotas, colder than average temperatures as well. The other thing, uh, and I share Terry's uh, shaking her head no over there, but uh, you know, the, <laughs> the other thing um is the polar vortex. The polar vortex is a upper level low pressure system that kind of spins it like a top at the North Pole. What Judah Cohen was telling us is that there is high potential for the polar vortex to stretch. So it elongates. Now it could elongate anywhere in the northern hemisphere, but if it elongates over, you know, the northern plains or the Northeast, or wherever, you're going to have a higher likelihood for cold. And right at the edge of where that polar vortex is, the potential for stormy weather as well. Ooh. And that's and just speaking about what happened here at the Jersey Shore, we had our snowiest January on record. Records go back to 1943. And that was because we were just at the edge of that polar vortex event. So I think there are shots um, as we go into, you know, and Judah was kind of saying this, and from what I gather, maybe about the second half of November into December, some good shots of colder than average air in much of the Northeast and mid-Atlantic. Um, and then, you know, looks like uh, winter is going to generally be mellow as we take our way out and go into the spring. And, and that that should be true for uh, much of the country, save the Northern Plains. Okay. And I, I know when we talk about, yeah, the California area needing more precipitation and it's just really not happening and it sounds like it's still not really going to happen for them yeah it you know drought is very it's it's california and it's even mm -hmm. the southern plains right now texas oklahoma kansas you know lo looking ahead for there um you know if you go off of the noaa you know the national oceanic and atmospheric administration's winter outlook here across the area uh the south you know your texas is in oklahoma more than likely going to be drier even into California as well, more than likely. That doesn't mean it can't be wetter, but more than likely going to stay drier. So, you know, just not a great situation for the South and for the, the I should say the mid, uh, 
the Great Plains, the Southern Plains. There we go. Third time <laughs> there. And uh, in the Southwest as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just to that point real quick, I think we've seen the pictures of what's going on on the Mississippi River, south Ugh. of St. Louis, Memphis, how that is so, so low because it has been so dry upstream in the mm -hmm. Mississippi River Valley and into the Missouri Valley uh, and the Northern Plains, which is where the water is coming from. Um, you know, I've, we've been fortunate here in Virginia. A lot of the Northeast has had some drier spots, but we're, we're doing okay. Every time we are, are about to fall into a legit drought, we just managed to get some rain. Ah. So we're kind of hanging on here in Virginia. Um, but, you know, it's going to be dry this week here locally. So mm -hmm. uh, this is this is the way it kind of goes. There are going to be these ups and downs, and we're going to figure out a way to to make our way through them. And I know this is a tough one, but I always kind of like to end with maybe a bottom line of what we've been talking about today. Is there such a thing when we're talking about the weather, just to sort of wrap this up? Oh, wait, I I'm sorry. What was the question? I apologize. Oh, that's OK. Um, I sort of like to end with a bottom line. And, and I don't know that there is even one for weather because weather is constantly changing. But with our uh, topics we talked about today, Joe, what would you want people to be thinking about? Well, I think well, I think everything we just said just shows the value of having a live in-person meteorologist like Sean and I here today. Um, we get it. There's a billion weather apps out there. Um, <laughs> Sean and I probably have some on our phones. But when it comes to significant weather, severe weather, and learning about the weather, no one is going to do it better than an in-person meteorologist. And that's why we're here. You know, Sean's at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. I'm here at the Press of Atlantic City. And also got to shout out the two other members of our Lee Weather team who could make it today, Kirsten Lang at the Tulsa World and Matt Hollander, who covers, uh, I don't know, maybe seven states in the Midwest. Wow. Um, so, you know, we're doing something that's, that's really uh, revolutionary, bringing meteorologists to local, quote unquote, newspapers. And mm -hmm. uh, we're looking forward to the future. It's terrific. And your podcasts have been amazing. And again, we will share that in our story notes so people can get a listen to those. Sean, anything as we wrap up from you? Yeah, just to reemphasize what Joe said, the apps are fine for what they do in a, in a slower, slower changing weather situation. Yeah. When things are happening very quickly, apps, frankly, just can't keep up. They are entirely automated and they do a few things pretty well. Um, but in terms of decision support, helping you make a plan to do, whether it's play golf, paint your house, have the outdoor barbecue, whatever, you're going to need somebody to help interpret some of that data for you because that data that shows up on your phone is just data. It doesn't really care about you. Yeah. Wow. Joe, Sean, thank you. I often consider weather, especially when there's uh, different things happening as the biggest news of the day. So it's terrific to talk with both of you and take our listeners behind the headlines when it comes to weather being a headline. So thank you for that. Good to be here, and thanks for having us on, Terry. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Terry. Appreciate it. Joe and Sean are part of a four-person weather team at Lee Enterprises, and they produce their own weekly podcast called Across the Sky, which we will link to in the show notes. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Headlines. You can find us on every podcast platform, and we would love it if you would take a moment to subscribe and give us a review. Finally, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program, we encourage you to invest in local journalism by supporting the newspaper serving your community. I'm Chris Lay, and for Terry and myself, thank you so much for listening to Behind the Headlines from Lee Enterprises.